0: Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you and we do it from scratch. All season long, we've been building for the Fallout role-playing game, and today we're gonna wrap up the second season, which means for the final time in a show open, I'm gonna remind you that you can check out the Modiphius Entertainment website at net or your local game shop or bookstore if you are still looking for a copy of the book or the rules or whatever we're going to call them. All right, so last week we wrapped up the build portion of this season. We even wrote up a few of the ideas that you can use if you want to keep the show going. Well, more to the point if you want to keep your campaign going. This week we're going to start with a recap of my group session from last week which ironically enough was the final session for our campaign as well. And then we're going to get into the postmortem for both the build for the season and for how I thought the gameplay went for our group. Now, before we do that, I got to recap what my group did during the previous session. And then we're going to cover last week's game. The recap of the previous session, we got to do that because it's been well over a month since the last time we played. And I got to tell you, that recap is going to be long and it's going to sound like a story because I got to go back and do it in depth. So kick back, relax. Here we go. When last we gathered, we were short two players because both Aniston and Gabe were out. So we picked up the session with the group preparing to head out to the Fox Theater to rescue Victor And they had organized a plan with Mr. Lee for his super mutants to act as a distraction for the security at the front of the theater so they could work their way around to the back of the theater and make their way down the block so they could utilize the tunnel to get under the theater and then enter from there. They organized a signal to use so that the mutants didn't act too soon and then wind up blowing the whole deal. The group got into position, gave the signal, then the muties used their miniguns to draw out as much attention to themselves as possible. The intended effect was to draw the security off the front of the theater, and the hope was that for security inside the theater to relocate to the front, and then potential security inside the tunnel to relocate inside the theater. I made some rolls behind the screen to see if that was going to indeed be the case. And lo and behold, it was the case that left two men inside the tunnel. And of course, my group was able to deal with that. They made their way into the theater, which was dark. They found Victor tied to a chair, which was exactly how we'd written it. The theater was also pitch dark. Again, that was exactly how we'd written it. They also heard Jessica Denman call out to them about things being personal at that point. This was also the point at which Victor was shot. Then other shots started ringing out, which, again, was exactly how we'd written things up. This is where things started to deviate from what we had intended. While the group did get their hands on Victor and they did drag him back out into the tunnel, Jim decided to call an audible. Since he has upgraded his sensors by a lot over the course of the campaign, he now has the ability to do a pretty decent job of using his sensors to sense a lot of things. Now, he can't get overly specific, but it doesn't take a whole lot to figure out. If you've got a bunch of heat signatures and there's one moving a whole lot faster than the others, it's probably the woman who just threatened you and not a whole lot of heavily armored men. So, since he and Scott had decided that Denman had just made things very personal for the entire group by shooting the one person the entire group really likes and really respects, he was going to try to end this whole deal in one fell swoop. So, he asked if it would be possible to target that heat signature with a missile and let it fly. So, I told him it was possible, but I made him make his roll with a difficulty of 5, and I think I made him use luck instead of his skill really doesn't matter. He spent action points and he made the roll. And of course, he had enough extras on his attack roll. He had extra dice for his damage. And of course, he rolled a ton of damage. So of course he did enough damage to incapacitate her. And of course there was enough damage to damage the walls around her. So even if he didn't kill her outright, he did enough damage that she wasn't getting out immediately and that her people weren't going to be able to get her out immediately in the meantime he was able to get out of the theater by that point the rest of the group was hustling back to the symphony hall with victor so he could get some medical attention while the super mutants were basically mowing down attackers like it was some sort of game and of course, Jim believes in being very thorough in solutioning things. So he took a bunch of missiles and explosives, went to the top of the theater and finished what he had started on the inside, which meant he basically imploded the entire theater. At that point, whatever and whomever was still inside was crushed in the rubble, which meant Jessica Denman was D.E.A.D. dead. In other words, my campaign had been altered in one Fell swoop and just for the record it wasn't the last time it happened in that session once inside the symphony hall victor was taken to the medical suite and was treated but before he could be fully knocked out he tasked the group with finding mckenzie cook as he noted that paladin zane and her crew were looking for her and if they wanted her that could not possibly be a good thing so the group headed for her office to see what they could find They got to her office, and after much searching, they found the note that led them to the Universal Food Market. Now, when we had built this particular piece of the scenario out, there was supposed to be a couple of encounters along the way, but I had intended the Garson Tactical Men in these encounters to have tailed them from the theater. Now, I didn't specifically say that during the build, but that was what I would have been thinking inside my head. So since the group took out the theater, I didn't have those men to use. So I had to drop those encounters from the scenario and they got to the market without an incident. Now, I do need to back up just a bit here since I had needed to speed things up a bit. Thanks to the group altering the campaign. I brought the pugness into the picture a bit earlier and had it already showing up over Diamond Pass as they were making their way to the food market. So that was going to alter what was coming next. So the timeline was needing to be sped up and I'll be addressing that when we get to the post-mortem. Anyway, getting back into the recap, the group met with Cook, and she finally revealed her alliance with Elder Sandvar and the Brotherhood of Steel, and she asked the group to meet with her group. Since I needed to speed things up, I moved the base from Alton to the old Garson Tactical Base at Jefferson Barracks, and Cook asked them to head that way with her to meet the Elder and take a job to help the Brotherhood. Now, the group was all for taking a job, but with the pugnus being as close as it was to the pass, they suggested that the elder just tell them what she wanted them to do, send one of the vertebrates to pick them up, and then take them where they needed to be and just save everybody all the time. This is where we got back into the stream of the build and brought the Forest Park mission in. When it occurred to the group where they were being asked to go, they really didn't want to do it, but when Paladin Zane's name came up, they really couldn't get there fast enough. Sanvar suggested that the art museum was the most likely location, and they all agreed that if that was the location, they'd be best served to enter the park from the southwest corner to limit the amount of time they would be in the park. Once they got landed and got close, Jim had another idea. Since he doesn't have issues with radiation, that he could get to the roof of the art museum, and that he has sensors that would allow him to scan for life signs that would indicate whether or not Zane and her cronies would be there, He should just go in and do that very thing. Now, one might ask how he could be so sure. Well, as he pointed out, Zane would have her power armor with her and her three companions would be close since the four of them would never go anywhere alone. He went up, he did his scans, and he came up snake eyes. He returned to the group. They reported that and they came to the conclusion that with Denman out of the picture, the four of them probably shifted over to take over whatever big project or mission Denman had been running out of the theater to head to when Jim had taken her out earlier. Which, by the way, turned out to be true. Cook reported that the Pacificus had picked up reports of increased activity from the Lemp Brewery, and it was increased enough to be considered unusual, so the group requested that when the vertebrate came to pick him up, that it take them there. They noticed another vertebrate grounded there and worked to keep their vertebrate just far enough out of range to avoid getting shot out of the sky, and be able to drop enough explosives on it to render it useless. They landed, then were able to use the miniguns on their vertibird to take out Palleted Zane and her crew as they emerged from the brewery with a very large missile. They called into the Pacificus and requested a second vertibird to collect the missile, then they headed for the Pacificus themselves. But the group decided they weren't quite done causing chaos just yet. They decided they wanted to end the fight before it began, and Jim decided he could take out the Pugnus before it had the chance to take out Diamond Pass. So he took a mini-nuke, had the Vertibird get him just close enough to the Pugnus for him to be able to glide over to it, which was no small feat considering some of the pugnus' Vertibirds were trying to shoot it out of the air. He then dropped the mini-nuke onto the Pugnus, thus destroying it, and everyone on it. I determined that while it didn't destroy Diamond Pass, it did land on the riverfront destroying Laclede's Landing and everything around it. At that point, the group returned to the Pacificus. Aniston and Brayden's characters joined this Brotherhood of Steel group and got promotions tonight. They also got their own suits of T-60P power armor. Clayton and Scott got the other suits the group already had. Everyone got the chance to get patched up and it was determined that they needed to take out the last of the Brotherhood leadership and bring this battle to a quick end. There was another short mission they went on, but to be honest, this was more a time filler than anything. So I just dropped it since it really didn't have any bearing on the overall campaign. And I brought them back to the Pacificus when we wrapped. So we picked up the final session at this point, point. and I have to admit up front That with the entire campaign pretty much over at this point, the only reason I chose to run something for this session was that I wanted to give the group a wrap session since we'd been two players down to the session before, plus it had been well over a month since the last time we played, so I pulled the encounter we built several weeks back where the group goes looking for the Garson Tactical Base of Operations. Here's how it played out for my group. The group began the session on the deck of the Pacificus, checking out all of the chaos they'd brought to the Pugnus and that batch of the Brotherhood of Steel. I also took the opportunity to note that since the vertebrates that belonged to that group realized they couldn't reasonably combat the Pacificus' forces, they'd conducted kamikaze dives into the dome and many other locations, and those explosions were also noticeable from the deck. During all of this, Elder Sandvar and Paladin Cook approached the group and noted that there was one final task they had for the group to complete, as they noted there were still Garson tactical personnel observed attacking Brotherhood members guerrilla-style throughout the city. The group was being tasked with locating the facility being used to give those orders and shut it down by any means necessary. The group first inquired about using the onboard computers and transmission gear to pick up all known frequencies for Garson Tactical and broadcast a message to their troops, ordering them to stand down with the guarantee that if they did so, dropping their weapons and removing their gear, they'd be allowed to assimilate into the populace and live a normal life. If not, well, you know how this group operates by this point. Cook noted that they'd already tried that and nothing they'd been able to tap into had worked. They had been able to pick up a faint beacon of some type, but insofar as it being something that was transmitting an actual message, they weren't able to definitively determine that. So she had ordered the group's vertebrate readied for them with coordinates keyed in. She had also noted that Jim, he's a Mr. Gutsy that's been very modified by this point, would be able to pick up and triangulate the beacon signal so he'd be able to hone in on it to give the vertebrate pretty much an exact location for them to land. She gave the group the authority to command the bird once they'd left the Pacificus. The group followed the signal to the location, and the vertebrate was able to land on the street in front of the building. Now, I did make a change to the building from what we'd originally built, in that I removed the second floor of the building and all the traps that were on there. I'll explain why I did that after we get through the rundown. Jim entered the building, blew the trap on the counter, and used his sensors to find the trap door in the floor. The group moved the furniture blocking the door, opened it, and made their way down to the metal door and the terminal used to unlock it. This is where I realized I would left a flaw in the build. See, when I laid it all out, I realized I hadn't taken into account someone trying to hack the turrets from this terminal. Now. I could have just said that the turrets weren't accessible from this terminal. But since I hadn't specifically noted in my notes that it wasn't, I decided to be fair to the group and ruled that they could be. Gabe hacked the system, disabled the turrets, then unlocked the door. They dealt with the Protectrons, then unlocked the next door and moved along. They made their way down the next hallway, checked out the offices, and when they realized there wasn't anything in there worth dealing with, they moved into the next corridor." They ran into the iBot and a few Mr. Gutsies, and while they initially tried to talk them into standing down, it turned into a combat. However, after blowing up the iBot and two of the Gutsies, they managed to convince the two remaining Gutsies to not only stand down, but to transmit the authorization code to deactivate the security in the rest of the bunker. Let's just say that blowing up three robots in the course of two rounds gave them favorable difficulty in their roles to persuade. That made their access to the control room a breeze, and since they had an escort with system access, they utilized it to access the system. Once they understood what they were dealing with, Gabe used his hacking ability, along with action points he took from the group pool, to alter the deactivation program for the Garson Tactical Sense. I agreed to allow this, but I increased the difficulty level to 6, which is technically something you shouldn't allow, but I figured, <laughs> it's the last session. Why not? The idea was to remove the cause havoc piece of the programming, order all synths to move to a location in the middle of the Mississippi River, and deactivate in one hour. Gabe made his role with room to spare, and the orders went through. With that, the group succeeded in their mission, and as Gabe, Scott, and Jim noted, they now have a new base of operations for the group, with guard robots available to be reprogrammed. And that's where we wrap the campaign. Oh, and I shorted the building earlier because we held the session zero for the campaign Jim is going to run in two weeks after we wrap this game. So I chose to not run the group through something that didn't have a direct impact on the story since I didn't really need to run this scenario in the first place. So it's time to get into the campaign postmortem. We'll start with my thoughts on the build itself. My first issue with the build is with the book itself. Overall, I don't like the layout. For someone who's played a lot of different systems over the years, I feel like it's disorganized. And maybe that's because I like the layout of D&D or Vampire, which make it easy to build a character and find the various feats, skills, weapons, etc. But finding those things for Fallout sucks, since you find yourself looking on one page for the weapon, then... Turning to another page to figure out how it works with this modification, then turning to another page for this and yada, 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 yada. Another thing that bothers me with the book is that there's stuff missing that I really wish was there. If you go back through the build, there are times that I mentioned things like a listen check or things like that, and they just don't exist. I mean, I realize they don't exist in the video game, but for a role-playing game, you need things like that. Now, maybe they'll put them in later on in an update or another edition, but at this time and in this place, it's lacking. But they say that a craftsman shouldn't blame his tools, and that is a good point. So let me take a look at my performance and pick it apart a bit. One of the overall issues I think I had with the build: is that I was trying way too hard to bring too much of the video game feel to this build and not enough of a tabletop role-playing game feel to it. Part of my mea culpa on this is that two of my players, Clayton and Braden, came to the table specifically because they're huge fans of the video game and I know I had it in the back of my mind to provide some fan service to them when I was building. Now that being said, I could have incorporated some of the facets of the video game into the build without going so darn far overboard with it. Now, Maybe some of that overboard comes from the rules themselves. I mean, there's a lot of the rules and items in the game that are pulled directly from the video game. I mean, it makes sense if you're going to make a tabletop role-playing game pulled directly from a video game. But I can't help but wonder how much of my decisions were drawn directly from my experiences playing the game, especially since I was playing a lot of Fallout 4 during various times this season. I also think I was trying to do too many of the do this task, report back, then do this task, then report back thing. Traditional role-playing games don't necessarily do that. You adventure, you do something, then you move along to do the next thing. I think I could have, and probably should have, taken that philosophy and modified it to fit the concept better. I just got too hung up on, this is Fallout. And if you know what movie I stole that from, good for you. Anyway, it's something to consider as I move forward in building games in the future. Now, here's one I've gotten from listeners both on the podcast and on the YouTube channel. I created both locations and NPCs along the way that we never used. If you'll remember back to the creation episodes, if you didn't hear them originally, I ran them the week of Christmas as a Megasode. I made it a point to specifically build some organizations, locations, and and I think some specific people that we were going to use, and I wound up using maybe half of them. I also created a few over the course of the build that I maybe used once or twice, even after I swore up and down and left and right that they'd be coming back. Now, to me, that's just poor management, and that's a learning moment for all of us. If you're going to take the time and energy to create something, make sure you've got a legal pad or a notebook or a dry erase board or something that you're using to keep track of all these things. Then keep track of how you're using them so that you can make sure you're using what you've created. That way, if you're looking for someone to drop into a specific situation, you can either use somebody you've already built or you know you need to build somebody. The same thing goes for organizations and locations. The other option is to just build as you need things. There's no right or wrong answer as to how to do this. Just pick one, run with it, and be consistent. And by the way, thanks for keeping me honest on this. By the way, when my friend, fellow GM, and member of my game group, Jim, asks me why in the world I would do a post and intentionally pick apart my own work like this, it's for stuff like this. Stuff we can all learn from. Here's one that's a repeat from last season. So obviously I'm not learning from my own stuff. We had way too many storylines and scenarios that hinged on the group having positive relationships or friendships with others. I mean, most published adventures or modules out there make that particular assumption, but I really went out there way too many times on this one. And I didn't leave a lot of wiggle room for my group or your group if they didn't. Kind of got me a bit in a bind with my own group, which I'll address in a few when I post Mortem the gameplay, so it's something to be aware of. Here's another one along those same lines. As I went back through some of the episodes to archive them to close things out, I noticed a few things. There were a lot of times I'd be building things and I'd say, well, that's something we can get back to another time. Then we never got back to it. That's just bad business. It's a bad way to build. And with the number of exceptionally short episodes we had this season, there's no reason for it. So I can't do anything other than apologize for it. No excuses. All right. One more. Then we hit the postmortem for the gameplay. If you really break this down, I built this like a post-apocalyptic D&D game. I mean, let's look at this for a minute. The group went out on adventures, they completed tasks assigned to them by a boss or a leader, they went through dungeons slash buildings, and they occasionally rescued people. Okay, maybe it wasn't technically a D&D game, but I didn't take advantage of what makes Fallout, Fallout. I should have leaned into those rules more. As rough as it is to work through that book and find what you're looking for in the rules, I should have spent more time doing that, then spent more time explaining them to you. We could have made it much more post-apocalyptic. There could have been more stakes. Ammo could have been more of a commodity. Caps could have been a bigger deal. Instead, well, instead it did turn into a bit more of a D&D game. And again, that's on me. All right, so we've checked out what I think the weaknesses are in the build. What do I think went wrong with the gameplay? The big thing is the same thing that happens in almost every game I run. And it's the reason I go by the Tag the Bad GM." I give my players the world. I always start with the intention of sticking to the game exactly as I've written it. The encounters will be run the way I've laid them out. They'll get exactly the money and items I intend for them to get. Lather, rinse, repeat. At some point, something happens and I get a soft spot. and I give them something I hadn't originally intended to give them. Or they suggest something in a scenario that I hadn't anticipated them being able to do and I allow them to attempt it (laughs) and... By God, they succeed. Whatever it is, it manages to shift the campaign in a manner that I didn't intend and I couldn't have anticipated, and I spend the rest of the campaign scrambling to get back on some sort of track or line or whatever so I can get to the ending I wanted to get to. Now, I don't necessarily blame them for that, since I do believe in the rule of cool. And for those who don't know what that means, it means that if it's cool, it should at least be considered to be allowed. And my group tends to really have a good time when they play. So really, if they're having fun, then it was a good night. Now, look, I know there's a lot of GMs out there who disagree with that philosophy. And I've had a few nights that I've been a bit upset that my carefully crafted scenario has been crashed in about 20 minutes. But the group had a ton of fun. So making them happy was, in the end, well, worth it. Truth be told, the more this happens, the more it teaches me. It is teaching me to be more aware of how I handle running scenarios and how I phrase things, as well as how to work with those players who are pretty good at talking you into doing just about anything. And since I am very much a people pleaser, I need to remember those types of things. So it's another one of those learning moments for me. And yeah, the mini nukes were way too much. It's definitely a campaign altering thing. I would also note that the Mr. Gutsy's ability to fly as high as we allowed them was a bit too much. The issue is that we couldn't find in the rules exactly how high they could fly. So even though we could only see them fly so high in the video game, the role playing game wasn't as specific. Ergo, we didn't have specific rules. Do you see why I got a bit upset with the book? Here's another one, and it's a trap I tend to fall into way too often. I tend to have one or two players who take the lead in the group, and I allow them to take so much control and so much of a lead in what's going on, they can kind of overshadow everyone else in the group. And with a group the size of the group I had at the start, which was eight, that can be an issue. I mean, everybody was trying to do cool stuff, but by the end, it came down to Jim doing really cool stuff. Clayton trying to do cool stuff, Scott saying cool stuff, Gabe being the hacker, Aniston acting crazy and occasionally doing cool stuff, and Braden being quiet but getting his shots in when he could. And yeah, I can see where you'd say, well, everybody's getting their chances, what's the big deal? There should have been more balance there. Everybody should have had at least one or two opportunities during a year-long campaign to feel like they were the center of attention, and they didn't get that. It would be one thing if this were an off-the-shelf campaign, but I wrote this, so I had the chance to customize it to my group, and I didn't do that. So I need to keep that in mind for my group, and it's something to keep in mind for your group when you do this sort of stuff in the future. And it makes me wonder if it didn't have something to do with Tyler and Max taking time off from the group along the way. I'd hope not, but I can't help but wonder, especially since Tyler's coming back for Jim's game. With that, we bring the post-mortem for Season 2 to an end and officially bring Season 2 of Bad GM's campaign build-along to a close. But, we managed to get renewed for another season. Yay. (laughs) Season 3 is something I got challenged to do back in October when we were at Archon, and while it's probably not fashionable to do it right now, I've decided I'm going to do it anyway since I hate to back down from a challenge. We're going to do fifth edition dungeons and dragons so next week we'll crank up season three of the campaign build along with a basic background build and we'll lay out a few other details along the way we're making some other changes for the new season as well but we'll get into all of those then in the meanwhile check out role-playing history this week we're going to deep dive ruin quest it's going to be an interesting tour and you're not going to want to miss it Role-playing history is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All right, it's the last time I have to do this, so let's do it. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarks and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. To check out the full line of gaming products produced by Modifius Entertainment, check out their website at modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. We've got a presence all over social media, so check out the info box for this episode or the website to see where you can follow us. Next week, we kick off the third season of this show and we start building for the granddaddy of all role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons. Until then, I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I can promise you, I'll see you at the game table.